Christmas Eve and I was sitting in my car with every single bottle of alcohol that I had in my house. I was prepared to drink myself to death right then, right there, and take as many pills as I had with me just to make sure I sealed the deal. And I was actually going into a panic attack because I knew I was really going to do it this time. Welcome to The Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health. From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Good evening. Hey, I want to welcome Eddie Ketch to the show to the Depression Files. Eddie, thank you so much. I know, uh, I think it was probably via Twitter that we connected, and I'm really uh, excited to have you here on the show today. Hey, thanks, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to start just by asking you if you could share some things about you. Okay. Um, well, it's the, the Depression File, and so I, I guess we should just sort of start with the roots of depression in, in my life. And you know, really, I would call it more of a transgenerational dysfunction, meaning I've got, um, you know, generations of people in my family who have suffered from one illness or another. My grandfather on my mother's side was an alcoholic to such a degree that my grandmother divorced him in the 50s, which is not done. Nobody gets divorced in 1953. Um, it led to my mother becoming uh, basically a latchkey kid. She was raised by a single working mother in the mid-50s. Again, unheard of. Um, my own father abandoned the family when I was only a month old. He walked out on me and my mother, and that sent her into serious anxiety and uh, depression, self-doubt. I went to live with my grandmother at that time, and I remember – being afraid of my mother, the the emotion, the intensity of her emotion was not congruent with a loving mother that a, a young child is craving. And so I, I go into that background so that you can understand why things happen as, as they do. Because when I was school age, I was very um, introverted and rather unathletic and I was bullied without having a lot of strong male role models in my life. I, I was um, really unprepared for that kind of interaction. And so what I did was I ran away and running away was literally running all the way through town to the highway. And it was late at night and I got lost and I expected to see a car, maybe somebody I knew I was, I was really, you know, not very, um, not very sure about how this was going to end for me. How old were but you I at did, the time? This is when I was seven years old. I was in first grade. Okay, and you were literally running away. I I was terrified of, of, of being in a fight with the bully who had been harassing me the whole year. And on January 30th of 1980, I ran all the way through town to the highway, which is in Southern California. It's Pacific Coast Highway. And I was expecting that maybe I would see somebody. My mother remarried. I thought maybe I'd see my new father, his car. But it was dark, and the 
road was very busy and I was completely disoriented. And the only thing I did see was this very slow moving vehicle that kept going back and forth and back and forth. And I could feel the driver's eyes on me. And so I ran away, but he got out of his car and he chased me down and he was able to kidnap me. Uh, when that happened, he actually took me very close to a, my home. He, he drove in the direction of where I lived, but he stopped short of my house and went to a vacant lot where he sexually assaulted me. This is a, obviously a, a horrible, terrible turn of events, but the worst part about that actual event was not the sexual assault per se. It was my mother's reaction. You know, the child molester said what all child molesters say. Don't tell anybody. Right. My mother, my mother finds me, and she takes me, and we go to the hospital to get checked out. She takes me to the cops, and we get the police report. Because, On the way home from because the— Because you shared the story with your mom right away. Well, it was apparent. I was—okay, so I was missing. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, right. And, they found, and they found me staggering. I was on wow. the street, dazed, staggering. Um, you know, I, I was in shock, so I can't tell you how long the ordeal lasted. It was maybe uh, an hour, maybe several hours. Um, you know, the, the actual details of the man and the, the assault are very blurry because at that age and at that, um, at that level of intensity of, of experience, it just, you just go into shock. Right. Uh, um, Needless to say, at some late hour, I was found wandering the streets in a daze. Um, the awful thing about it, so they put me in the car and they drive me home, and the awful thing about it is my mother turns to me and she says, Eddie, don't tell anyone. Whoa. So this is, yeah, so, okay, so we're, we're dealing with somebody who has, in her own right, some very severe personality disorder, and... Um, I, I'm I'm only now just beginning to understand this whole idea of like this transgenerational uh, dysfunction because what's going on with her is you know she's feeling extremely um, vulnerable and there's you know so much of 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 her life has has been these these really traumatic experiences being rejected by her own husband and. And then, and then now this experience. And so when, when people have those experiences, oftentimes when they feel so vulnerable and so um, compromised, they'll, they'll generate this, this narcissistic personality where everything is grandiose and everything is, 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 is very, very, um, very big and, and, and we have to follow the rules and those rules are always her rules and and we don't ever do anything that's going to besmirch the image mm. or besmirch those you know or contradict the rules right and and so i spent the remaining 11 years that i lived in that house having her gaslight me telling me these symptoms that i was having of depression the the loneliness the alienation the withdrawal those are the symptoms of depression that I was told were just personality flaws, that I needed to buck up, that I needed to get over it, that I, if I just got some friends and I just start to play some sports and I, I would be fine and I needed to quit moping. That was always from your mom. That was my mom. And so rather than help me digest the experience and help me find any kind of 
mental health support, she will antagonize me. Um, she used to yell at me for having low self-esteem. I wow. swear to God, it's a, it's kind of a joke. I actually think it's funny. You know, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Right, so, right. so um, my depression started fairly early on in life and was unmitigated uh, due to my family's transgenerational dysfunctions. All of these these inherent flaws that they themselves were suffering. Um, you know, can I go back just a bit when you said, you know, you're staggering after being sexually assaulted, which I'm so sorry to hear. I, I, you know, I've never been through anything like that. I can't imagine what you were going through. And as a seven-year-old trying to process it, and like you said, like not being able to process it at all. Um, and your mom did bring you to the hospital, it sounds like, or to police or somebody. And, and did your right. mom ask you to not tell them the truth? Was that part of the don't say this, to, don't share this with anybody? Even so to... it, it was OK for me in the moment. It okay. was OK for me. Well, so, you know, the doctors knew why I, why I was there. OK. You know, I was okay. taken to they were expecting me. I was taken to an exam room. I got a full physical, which, by the way, was almost as. Traumatic. violating oh my <laughs> yeah it was almost as traumatic and violating as the actual assault so you know it was, it was obviously very cold very clinical and there's a strange man who's poking you in places that yeah. that he would rather not be poked again right, and so right. and so they knew why i was there at the okay. hospital i didn't need to explain anything to them right um the cops were asking me before my mom got to me the cops were asking me where have you been? What happened? What did this man do? Where did he touch you? Did you touch him? What went on? And so they already were starting to interview me um, without any intervention from my, my, my parents. Right. And to be sure, she did participate in taking me back later to look at mug books. But when she says don't tell anybody, she's talking about our public persona. I couldn't tell the rest of my family. Right. You weren't going to talk about this. This was something that was just our family secret. We're going to shut this down. Yeah. And so it became this crushing, crippling secret that I could never talk about. The irony is she liked to talk on the phone to her friends about it. She was soliciting sympathy from other people, her own anxiety, her, no, her own uh, you know, feelings of failure needed to be assuaged. Right. So she called her friends and she would tell them my story. And so here I am, this little kid, told, you can't talk, yeah. listen to my mother, co-opt my own story right? so that she can gain sympathy. And so it was all very confusing, and it made me have a lot of, you know, made me feel very damaged. You know, it, it, it was a situation where I became, um, I blamed myself. You know, I became very self-critical. I, I had a lot of self-loathing. I blamed myself. There must be something wrong with me. Right. These awful things, if these are awful things that are happening in my life, there must be something wrong with me that, that makes me the target for this or makes me deserve this in some way. And, so, and you held that in through elementary school, through high school. Yeah, those... so she took me to some shrinks that were basically just hacks. Yeah. And you know, the problem in these, you know, so this is 1980. The term post-traumatic stress disorder did not even enter the lexicon until 1985. The usual Bible that they use is called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I think they were on DSM-4 by 1984. 
And at that point, they were just beginning to introduce the idea of PTSD. This was in regard to veterans returning from the Vietnam War and displaying the very same signs that anybody who has that kind of trauma will display. Alienation, depression, isolation, self-loathing, suicide ideation. It's all the same. The The trauma itself is, is, is a different you know that that changes, but the ultimate result is always the same, mm-hmm. and that's why I think these 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 kinds of shows where we talk about depression, you know, the the, the details of my life are relatively inconsequential. Um, we all experience those same feelings of inadequacy and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, and uh, whether or not it's because you were violently abducted and sexually assaulted or or you have had a a a life circumstance where you just have this malaise and and the the things that you do don't even provide any kind of 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 gratification for you um you know that's it's the same symptoms overall Uh, actually for me Al, I'm a little lucky in as much as I can point to a, a single inciting incident. Um, a lot of people who deal with depression, they can't point to some watershed trauma or some specific life experience. They have this this feeling of of you know dread, foreboding, and 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 discontentment and unhappiness, but they can't point to any one thing. And that makes it especially difficult, especially uh, because there's such a stigma around seeking mental health resources and and help for things like depression. Um, So, yeah, I I had a very specific inciting incident, and that incident was exacerbated by the fact that my parents were completely unhelpful. And if anything, they – you know, they – they were responsible for for driving me even further into thoughts of suicide and depression. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you hold them responsible, and yet at the same time I hear a bit of you saying, man, they were going through some serious mental issues of their own. Yeah, well, um, you know, the the thing about being a parent, and I I have a daughter who's 17, um, who herself has struggled with some depression and thank goodness I've had such a long history of depression so that I could be a resource for her and a, and a trusted advocate for her. Um, but the, the thing that my parents always said to me was, well, you know, kids don't come with an instruction manual. We didn't have the tools. We didn't know what to do, which is, uh, true. Kids do not come with instruction manuals, but as the parent and the adult in the relationship, you get the tools, you find out what to do. You learn, <laughs> what you know what's going on and how that you can mitigate those negative circumstances and so yeah i have um a little bit of culpability on the part of my parents but i'll say this about pointing fingers and and issuing blame you can do that all you want but it doesn't make you feel any better you know i did that for 30 years so my my parents they did help out. They took me to just some shrinks that were absolute hacks. Yep. Um, they did not seek any kind of specialists, any child psychologists that would specialize in things like trauma. Um, the the times that I went to see psychologists for my 
mental health was because of my behavior problems. As you might imagine, I was failing in school. I had no friends. I was detached. I was uh, oppositional. I was defiant. I was sarcastic. Um, I was not a fun person to be around. And so they were just really up in arms about my behavior. And that's why they would send me to see um, psychologists, was to try and control my behavior. The underlying depressive episodes, the underlying trauma was never discussed. And again, I don't talk about it. Right, right. So, yeah. And so with those therapists, you would talk about it, but that was it. Nobody no, else. No, no, never. Not even with those therapists. You couldn't never. talk about that. It was more about your behavior and your feelings. It was never debriefing and talking about processing through that experience as a seven-year-old. Well, okay, so when you're a child, you don't understand the therapeutic relationship. That's right. never spelled out for you. Uh, you're put in a room with an adult, and they start asking you about things like, how do you feel today? Do right. you have frustration in life? Do you, do you ever feel disappointment? And so they, they go through all these secondary and sort of tertiary emotions – and as a as a kid or a young adult, you know you're dealing with massive issues of of self loathing and depression and suicide ideation. And so, if somebody asks you if you have frustrations in your life, you know that's like having a flesh wound and asking somebody if they want you to remove the splinter. Right. 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 <laughs> so, so those those conversations were always guided by the professional never you know i didn't have the wherewithal to to understand what the client relationship was like when you're a kid you don't nobody explains that to you they just stick you in a room and to be sure my mother set the tone she said we're here because eddie is you know he's failing four out of his six classes and he doesn't ever want to get out of his room and he doesn't have any friends and so we need to fix him and and i'm I'm not privy to the conversations that they had outside of the the room, but right. I'm pretty sure she never mentioned that little tidbit about oh being kidnapped and sexually assaulted in the first grade. That that tiny little bit, that, yeah, li- that know, little yeah. incident that happened that one time when you were seven. Yeah, my goodness, it's, you know, it's easy to just like totally, you know, have that slip your mind. So your your high school days were similar to how you describe your elementary school days? I mean, the same kind of isolation, not really participating, bad, poor grades? Well, I am a nonconformist, and I'm never happy with the status quo, and perhaps that's why I'm alive today. Um, So I knew when I was sitting, drinking alone in 7th and 8th grade, just sitting in my room, stealing my parents' terrible box wine, and listening to, of all things, Asia by Steely Dan, because if I'm going to drink wine, I want to be a sophisticate. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you've listened to that album, is is probably the most depressive Steely Dan album there is. That is I didn't funny. know it was actually hurting. <laughs> you know, it was, it was worse. <laughs> so I did that. I sat there and I listened to Black Cow and Deacon Blues drinking terrible box wine left over from some Christmas party. And I realized about eighth grade, I said, I have to change my life. I am going to kill myself. I've been thinking about it. And if I don't change my life, I am going to kill myself. Wow. Eighth grade. Yeah. Wow. And you, at that time you were having serious thoughts of suicidal ideation. Oh, 
every day, all the time. Yeah. General thoughts, or I mean, were you like really uh, no, coming up with a plan no, there, type of deal? It, it had not progressed to a plan. Well, it started. Let me tell you how naive I was and how young I was. It started so long ago that I would hold my breath. I mean, I don't even know how old I was. This is obviously after the the sexual assault incident, um, but before the eighth grade. But I remember laying in my bed thinking to myself, if I could just stop breathing, then the pain would go away. And and so I, not realizing the brainstem controls your breathing and there is a mechanical override, I would just lay there for as long as I can, exhaling, 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 and try as hard as I could not to inhale ever again because if I didn't inhale, then I wouldn't breathe, and if I wouldn't breathe, then I wouldn't have the pain. Wow. Can you, this might be really tough to answer, but when you say you wouldn't have the pain, could you explain what you mean by the pain? Uh, yeah. So anybody who's had depression understands these feelings of extreme alienation, of being on an island. I had few friends, um, and I did not get along with, with people. I did not feel like I fit in. I'll tell you a little story about the degree of my alienation. The day I went back to school after I was sexually assaulted, that was a Friday, by the way. The weekend flew by just as a blur. The Saturday and Sunday and Monday morning were all just like a three-minute moment in time. And the day that I go back to my first-grade classroom, I have this burning urge to stand up for show and tell. I just, I have this like, this incredible need to tell my story because I'd met all of these professionals, you know, with little kids, who do they love? Police officers and doctors and firemen and detectives. And I'd met all those people. Right. I'd, met, I'd met all of these cool people, you know. I, I, I met the guy in the badge. I rode in the cop car. I saw the doctor. I went to the emergency room. I, I met with a sketch artist. I met with all of these really super cool people, and I started listing all of these people in first grade. But I didn't give any context, and I didn't give any reason. And these children are looking at me, and their eyes are just – you know, their brows are furrowed, and their eyes are quizzical. And, and they don't understand why am I listing all of these strange people that I know. And then it hit me. They have no – my experience, they have no foundation. There is no possible way that I can explain to them in a way that they can understand what I've been through. And in the first grade, I realized that my childhood was over. I realized that I was not one of them and I would no longer be a child. Wow. And so that is the degree of alienation. And That is the pain. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, I get the pain piece. Um, I don't know if all the listeners do, and I think people who haven't been through depression don't understand how painful it can be. And right. did your pain manifest like physically? Could you feel pain, gut aches? Oh, or, yeah. Like, how, oh, yeah. Well, what kind of physical, how did it manifest itself with physical pain? Well, the physical pain is, I mean, to, so I'm about 45 years old right now. I'm going to turn 45 in November, and... uh as you get to be an older person, you, you get a lot of heartburn. It just it is what it is, and so you get that that feeling in your chest, that 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 tightness, that discomfort, 
and it's very similar that that pain that heartache i mean it literally is heartache and i walked around with that that physical manifestation that heartache for decades and you know that's what led me to self-medicating so let me answer your question about high school you said that was that a you know was there continuity there and no there was not because you know in eighth grade when i realized that i was on this very destructive path and i needed to change something about my life um I, 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 I took some measures to, to try and do what I could for myself without having any resources. The first thing I did was decide that I was going to start to try and play sports. All the shrinks were like, you know, you're an egghead. All you do is sit in your room. You read books. You think too much. You are absolutely in a, in a Cartesian point of view, just you know, a singular entity. You do not have a, any kind of dual existence. There is no physical nature to you. You are all mind, no body. And so I thought, okay, well, I suck at sports, but everyone says I need to start playing a sport. And I'm going to be a terrible athlete unless I can pick a sport that's so obscure there's no developmental league. <laughs> so so you chose – in basketball, you know, the, the, there's parks that have basketball hoops. And in baseball, we got Little League and we got Pop Warner and everybody's had all this chance. So yeah. I chose water polo. Sweet. I had no idea what it was. I thought maybe the horse fam. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so. And this was in high school now? This is my ninth grade. Ninth year. So grade, okay. I got, you know, my parents, as you might imagine, my parents were absolutely uninvolved. Um, they, they were concerned that I was failing school. They were concerned that I was moping, but they were not in any way hands on. And so I would fill out my class schedules on the back of the, bu- on the, on the back of my textbook, just writing in the bus. There was no academic planning for me. I, you know, I just, so I had a high school, uh, schedule that I was supposed to fill out, you know, for my classes for the ninth grade. And so I just, I just basically bubbled it in like you might bubble in a Scantron test. Like, ah, I'm guessing here, guessing there, whatever. And one of the electives that was offered was water polo, and I truly had no idea what it was. I knew that I hadn't drowned, so I figured, <laughs> well, if I hadn't drowned before, I must be an okay swimmer. That was my bar. Right, right. Um, so I get there, and there's all these guys, and they're cut up, you know. And I, you know, I'm a stick figure. I'm pasty, and I'm, I'm a total stick figure. And you know, clearly there's some sort of Eastern European water polo academy that I didn't know about because these guys were really good athletes. And all of a sudden, you were like, "Put me on that basketball court. I don't care if they've been playing all their lives." You know, I tried to play, and I, as you might imagine, I was terrible. Um, and so I, I did not finish out the season. But, I'm sure that did a lot for your morale. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'll tell you what. Winning the team actually did make me feel better because okay. I didn't have to hang out. <laughs> you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a particularly um, macho, masculine um, kind of you know, locker room guy. So all of that posturing, all of the hazing, all of that sort of you know, typical teenage male behavior was just abhorrent to me. I, I didn't want to have any part of it. Um, so I actually felt really good when I, when I quit the team, um, I, I, I was still convinced though, that I needed to change my identity in some way. I hated myself. I hated my place in the world. I hated my identity. So what I did was 
I found a new identity that I could fit in with. And of course, those were all of the stoners and the the losers and the people that that they typically look down on in the higher echelons of the social ladder. And uh, it turns out I fit really well with those guys. So that's that's how I reinvented myself. And that's how you spent your high school days. And that's how I spent my high school days. I grew my hair out really long. It looked like Sammy Hagar from Van Halen. Uh, I would save my lunch money and I would just buy beer. You know, we would we would pool all our money and we would buy forty ounces and just drink beer and take lots of drugs. And I have a therapist now, and she's actually had an insight regarding that episode of my life because these were in the Nancy Reagan just say no to drug years, and so I felt very stigmatized. I'm not, you know, and today, even to this day, I'm not proud of my substance abuse. I'm not proud of, of my high school career uh, of being this degenerate, if you will. But when I was talking to my therapist about it, she's like, that's what kept you alive. You had no one. You had no resources. You had nothing medication-wise. You had absolutely no other choice. Your friends and the medication that you did with, with marijuana, that is how you made it through those four years. And so it's really helped me gain a perspective on that episode of my life and really helped me to be a lot more forgiving. Um, you know, part about recovery, we haven't talked anything about recovery yet, which I'm dying to get to, but part of recovery is, is that permission to, uh, to be flawed and that, and that, um, that sense that you are a, a worthwhile and intrinsically good person and, and the things that you've done in the past are not something to beat yourself up about over and over again. And I did that for a long time, but she helped me really reframe that. And so it's really more of an indication of my will to live and my will to heal and my will to change my life than it was an indication of my will to throw my life away, as they say about people who use drugs. Oh, you're throwing your life away. No, I had the same feeling as you described it, right? You said yourself you were trying to reinvent yourself. You tried sports. You were trying whatever you could to survive and to make some positive changes. And at that age in your life, that was the positive change that helped you. It helped you gain friends. It helped you gain an outlet. It helped you gain some self-medication that at the time helped you survive those those days. Uh, shit, you did not have a lot of support and resources, right? So I'm glad you've come to a place where you can forgive yourself and say, you know, I did the damn best job I could with the limited resources and support I was given at that time as a very young young person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's all about finding the resources. Uh, you know, this, this topic of depression and what to do about it is, in a nutshell, you know, about acting on... Um, on that 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 realization that you need to find resources and need you need to make change, yep. and so that's you know, and I'm very I'm passionate about that now. Yeah, when did you come to a point where you finally shared your story? 
oh, well, I mean, I'm still sort of coming to that point. It's it's very slow. Um, you know, obviously, my parents have known all this long, you know, the whole time. It's not like I had to come out to my parents and say, oh, I was sexually abused, like a lot of young people do. A lot of the stuff happens under the nose of their parents, the uncle, the creepy priest, yeah, the right. and they never, the parents never know, and it's a big deal for the person, to, especially if it's a friend. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, thankfully, I was absolved of having to like come out to some uh, family member, and and by doing so, throw someone else under the bus. Um, which, which, by the way, if it was a family member who had molested you, throwing them under the bus would be perfectly appropriate, I would have to say. But I do understand. You're right. So this was a stranger, you're saying. So it was, it, was it was unrelated to the family, so you weren't going to impact the family in any way, right? The dynamics right. or that person. Right. And so, you know, when did I disclose or when did I come forward? Um you know, it's a difficult question because it's just been a very, very slow, un, you know, unraveling. And this gets back to the relationship that I've had with my mother, who spent so many years gaslighting me, telling me, "You're fine. You just need to improve your attitude. And if you would stop fucking around and doing all these drugs, excuse my language, you would be a healthy, happy person." And so, based on those you know, decades of, of messages from her, I really did discount that inciting incident. I really did feel like, okay, well, maybe it is me. I really did absorb that message in a, in, in a certain way so that I ignored how profoundly crushing the early experiences of my life were. Yeah. Well, the, and so, that was the only story you heard, right? Your mom. That was the only story I heard, and, and it's so stigmatized. I mean, not only do you not talk about your mental health problems and depression, that's stigmatizing. You sure as heck don't want to talk about your sexual abuse. I mean, that's even more stigmatizing, and especially for men because yes. we're supposed to be these strong and powerful and penetrable. Yep people and you know, the last thing a young man wants to do was talk about depression suicide ideation sexual assault and so i i buried all of that my behavior spoke for itself i was extremely self-destructive um you know the self-medicating becomes self uh, you know substance abuse right very quickly very quickly and and so i was passively suicidal with my substance abuse, you know, taking drugs and, and drinking alcohol and, and not saying no to anything, combinations of everything. Um, and so that, that informed my, my, my being for many, many years. I was an avid drug user when I was 15, 16 years old. And that hap that, that, that mindset followed through until I was about 36 okay so yeah so that's at least 20 years probably more of you know just solid drug use and what happened was I met a woman and she saw through all of the dysfunction and she saw the the true nature of my character 
and she was able to sort of separate all of the terrible behavior and the self-destructiveness and the crazy things I did from the authentic person who was hiding underneath all of that. And um, what what occurred was she was you – know, we were married and we have a family. and But she was constantly being confronted with my bad behavior, my terrible destructiveness, which culminated about you know, four or five years ago. Uh, it was Christmas Eve and I was sitting in my car with every single bottle of alcohol that I had in my house. I was prepared to drink myself to death right then, right there, and take as many pills as I had with me just to make sure I sealed the deal. And I was actually going into a panic attack because I knew I was really going to do it this time. Like, um, and you know, luckily, you know, this is, you know, I'm, you know, 38, 39 years old, something like that, maybe 40. I, I can't remember. Um, but you know, luckily, I'd been dealing with these feelings for so long. I had been dealing with hopelessness for so long that, in a certain sense, I was accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other problem that people who have depressive episodes face that I was never forced to face, which is I've been doing great. I thought everything was all in a line. My life is just the way that I had planned it out to be. Why am I depressed? And so people hit this wall because they can't figure it out. And it's crushing to suddenly have all of these negative feelings and just feel like you're the most worthless thing on the planet. I can imagine that if you've had really positive feelings for most of your life and all of a sudden now you just feel like you're trash, how – how upsetting that is. I mean, that is traumatic in and to itself. Luckily for me, I had been feeling worthless <laughs> and hopeless for so long that it wasn't even a novel anymore. It, you know, I, it doesn't even bother me. So I was able to calm down and really think about everything that I had. You know, here I am sitting in this car, my own car, outside of my house, my house with uh, my wife inside and my family. And so I was really able just to slow down and take perspective. And obviously I did not end up swallowing a handful of pills and drinking every bottle of alcohol that I owned. Um, But my wife is like, this can't go on. I'm leaving you if you do not get real help. And to be sure, I'd seen a few shrinks before, as you know, my, my mother would send me to these awful hacks and and that had it soured me. I'd never seen right. anybody who was right. Yeah. If if all you see are people who are completely incompetent, you have no faith in psychology or you know, psychiatry, any of that. So, but I love my wife and I love my family, and I, I it's all I had. Was it I was, that it, very night that your wife essentially gave you the ultimatum? Like she knew yeah. you were out there in the car, and she was like, "This is it." Like, yeah, you or, get or help, or we're morning. done. I think probably the next morning when I came in. Okay, you know? right. Um, but yeah, which was Christmas Day, right? How, how, how would you like to spend that Christmas? Oh, right. by the way, <laughs> remember how you wanted to kill yourself last night? Well, I'm going to divorce you now. You I mean <laughs> right. awkward? Yeah. <laughs> 
So she gives you the ultimatum, and then uh, and but so look. let me talk about let me talk about finding help. Okay, yeah, so absolutely mental health resources. I live in Washington State, which is the home of Microsoft, which is the home of eighty thousand really uptight, anxiety-ridden individuals. So you would think there would be a lot of mental health resources. There are not. It was extremely difficult for me to actually find competent mental health resources. Um, you know, and unfortunately, the people who were available on short-term notice were the same kind of hacks that I'd seen before. The, the people who are operating a psychology clinic out of their storage unit um, and so it, it was difficult. This is, we're talking December 25th. It was probably six weeks later before I got a, my first appointment with a real psychiatrist who, by the way, is fantastic. Um, he, he works here locally in the, uh, Seattle area and he saved my life. And I, and I tell him every day I, that I see him that, you know, he's my hero and he saved my life and I wouldn't be here without him because, the medication has absolutely changed my life completely, um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't have the the wherewithal to to do what I do without without his support and and without the the guidance. So um, does he also weird. provide you with um, talk therapy as well? He just prescribes the medication. And and I'll say that the industry has changed. Um, psychiatrists of your had the dual uh, job description of, of, of being a therapist and being a, a doctor that would prescribe medication because, but because there is such a dearth of psychiatrists and so many people who are requiring to be on medication, they don't have the time for it. And the other thing is a psychiatrist is $375 an hour, whereas right. a talk you know, you go to a regular counselor, it's maybe 125. So it's cost effective just to find somebody else. Um, but I did also start talk therapy. And between the psychiatry and the weekly talk therapy, I was really able to unpack that knot of 30 years of really distorted thinking and, and, and start to uncover all of these assumptions that I'd made in the past because the thing that long-term depression does to you is it changes your entire perception of the world. And so you see this world through a very narrow prism of depressive thinking. And it is not a friendly, happy, positive place. And the assumptions that you make based on those, um, based on those perceptions inform your entire life. And so you, you go around looking for self-fulfilling prophecies. You, you feel like everyone's working against you and you, you see the evidence how everyone's working against you. And so it's very difficult to unknot those. But that's, that's how I finally started to sort of come to, you know, tell my story and be uh, mentally healthy again was, was that night when I tried to commit suicide and, and I finally found help and I was able to find that medication that would un unlock my brain and your wife uh really laying down the ultimatum it sounds like to say you know i love you deeply i want to stay with you get some help so we can stay together and and really kind of force you into it almost in a loving way 
Well, and I, you know, to be sure, I was a terrible person. I had tortured her for years because of my behavior, you know, the substance abuse, the erratic behavior, the self-loathing, the, you know, the disappearing, you know, you name it. If there's a bad behavior that you can engage in, I did it. And, and, um, you know, it's just not conducive to having a happy family and a happy marriage. And I would, I would make progress and, and I actually, I want to talk about the now. I want to talk about progress because the reason I wanted to book your show is because how important it is for people with depressive disorders to understand what progress is like. And um, getting on medication is not the be-all, end-all. Going and seeing a therapist did not change my life. Um, I did the work myself. And there are three sort of pitfalls to progress that I wanted to discuss, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hear it. Okay. So um, when you're depressed and you are trying to figure out why, you're trying to figure out what your place in the world is and what's going on, every once in a while you'll get this little glimpse, an epiphany, and you'll feel really great about it. And I had these epiphanies when I was a younger person. Um, believe it or not, I had the opportunity to go to college as, as, as messed up as I was and as addicted as I was. Um, somehow still I managed to get into a state school and, and go to college. And, and so I was reading a lot and I was doing a lot of, um, self-reflection. And I would have these epiphanies, and I would think, "Oh, I got it! Oh, no, the, the, the universe is unlocked for me. I have, I have this this golden key." And and you feel so happy that you finally have some small level of understanding. But it's very naive and it's very short lived because that's not a it's not a blanket universal. It's a it's an insight into one thing, and then you realize that your insight is perhaps not quite as profound as you thought it was, and it's crushing. And so that is that is the first sort of you know, pitfall to overcoming depression is, is is when you have these insights and you feel so proud that you're finally starting to understand things, but they're not quite as as universal and and profound as you were hoping there would be. It's it's constant work. There is no one answer that's going to work for you. Right. You have to keep seeking answers. Keep digging. Keep keep going. Keep going. Keep going. So, um, you know, I was very naive about that, and I thought. I could just, you know, have these, these mental awakenings and that would be my, that would be my savior. And that's, it's not the case. And the second pitfall for people who are recovering from, you know, depression and other kinds of debilitating mental illnesses is how often we have to struggle and fall. You know, if you're making progress, you're going to fall down. But when you have depression, what do you focus on? The negatives. The negatives. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So you may have gone 300 miles, but when you stumble and fall on that last step, all you do is focus on stumbling and falling on that last step. And and people who are dealing with those depressive episodes really need to give themselves a lot of credit just for trying. The failing, everyone fails. If you're not failing, you're not trying. But it's hard because when you're depressive and when you focus on your failure and you think you're a failure and nothing is going right, it's very difficult to give yourself that 
permission to fail and to give yourself that congratulations for making it as far as you can. And that maybe a bit of a bad day doesn't mean you're spiraling down again. It's just right. part of the path to recovery. Absolutely. However, the distorted mindset says yes. the opposite. Right. Yeah. So it's a battle. And do you did you do any work with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? Because that seems like a, it, a lot of what it's about to stop the thought of, oh, crap, I just stumbled on this last step. I knew I couldn't make this recovery. I'm such a failure spiraling down. But to be able to stop that thought and say, whoa, 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 look at all the work I've done. Look at how much better I've gotten. I really am working hard and I really have made gains. And to to really stop those negative thoughts, be aware of them and stop them. Yeah, CBT is an excellent tool. Um, I did have a CBT therapist, ironically, before I hit the wall. Um, and I use it. It's invaluable. I use it every day, all the time. I would say that CBT only goes so far. It is like like I was saying with these small epiphanies, it, it is only going to go so far. It is not the be all end all. And, and you it's need to one keep... of the tools, right? One piece of the picture that might be really helpful for some people. Yeah. Well, all people. I think CBT is, is, is helpful for all people. I really, yeah. I, I believe that it's, it's just, as you said, it's a, it's a way of deconstructing your thoughts. Right. And that's very, and that's very helpful for anyone. Yeah. Could I be wrong? I mean, the, the whole, the whole premise of CBT, if you're not familiar with cognitive behavior therapy is the premise what if I'm wrong? Right, right. <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, so, and it just helps you walk through that progression. How do I determine whether or not these perceptions are right or wrong? Exactly. So, so yeah, I did use CBT, and, um, and it did help me when I failed, and I fell down, and I was not progressing at the speed that I thought I should be. The CBT, what if I'm wrong about this progress? What if I really am making progress? It, it helped me to recenter and... And, and continue to focus. But there is another aspect to recovery. This is the third aspect that makes it so difficult for people who have depression and depressive disorders to recover. And that third aspect is, is sort of the inertia of recovery. And it has to do with those first two items. So you've got these, these small insights and these epiphanies and you feel like at some point that they're just really not serving you anymore. And, and, and you're, and you're, and you're not as, as, as um, in, enlightened as you thought you were. And then you have these, these failures of, of your progress and you're not progressing as fast as you thought you should be. And, and so what that, what that becomes is this starting and stopping, this stuttering where you feel like you don't have any momentum, where, where you stop trying because you're like, well, all I do is fail and everything I think of that's true turns out to be wrong. And it's just, why do I, why do we even, why do I even continue? What, what's the point? And, and that, is, that is probably the worst part about being in the now and trying to recover and, and um, appreciating every day and doing all of these things that they tell you to do uh, is it, having that, that stuttering kind of feeling where you work and you work and you work and you just don't feel like it's getting anywhere. And, and that is a hurdle that is debilitating as any other, yeah. perhaps, perhaps the worst. And so I'm here to tell you that that is my last hurdle. And I think I'm finally seeing the downhill side of that because when you have the, the drive and the will and the stubbornness to continue regardless of how you failed, regardless of how your insights are no longer as, 
as cute as you thought they were, you can develop a momentum. The CBT and the deconstructing of negative thoughts becomes a new worldview. The positive contributions that you're making because you you are uh, getting up after you fall and not beating yourself up and continuing to move forward adds to that. And then there's a synergy that happens. And it's something that I'm finally starting to experience where it's all clicking. You know, I have these insights, but I don't freak out and think I'm this, you know, the master of the universe now. I understand that these are small little insights that are just part of the puzzle. I have failures. I do it all the time. I still fall down. But I use those and I build on them to strengthen my relationships with people. I have this new inertia in in the recovery. And like I said, I started this probably five or six years ago. And so it's taken me this long to to get to that point. But it does happen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it makes me think I oftentimes describe my recovery to depression. And I think many people um, like climbing up a mountain and then you reach a plateau and you get to a certain point and then you might even dip down a little bit, but then you start climbing up the mountain again. Plateau, you might dip down a little bit, but not as far as you were before. Then you start climbing back up. So there are plateaus, little dips and valleys, but they don't go down too deep. And you keep climbing up, getting better and better, um, pulling yourself out of that recovery. And I also think, and some of the listeners may have heard this already, but I strongly believe, and I think you're saying the same thing, it takes time and effort. You're not going to take a pill and you're going to be all better, and that's it, right? It's certainly, medication certainly might be a piece of the picture. CBT might be a piece of the picture, but it takes time and it takes effort. Yeah, absolutely, and and. That's really the the main message that I wanted to impart today is that it does take effort. It takes a lot of will, and it and it takes the um, a continual action. It, it's not. And that's what I was saying about having these little insights and then thinking you can just you know uh, put that issue to bed. It, it's not a case where you can put an issue to bed and never real never have to deal with it ever again. Um, it is, at least for me, a constant and continual job to stay mindful, to stay centered, to ignore the negative thinking that happens, to embrace the positive things in my life, and to um, really open myself up to the full experience. It's, it's, it's worth it, but it's not something that happens passively right so what would you say to those listeners who and maybe nobody's listening if they're at this point but when people are so depressed that they are at the point of hopelessness right because i've seen people when they hit that hopeless feeling they're not willing to put the effort in they're not willing to try and so what do you say to somebody who's at that point of hopelessness i was there yeah absolutely i mean what's more hopeless than killing yourself outside of your house in front of your family? That's, that's pretty hopeless. And I was there. I mean, I, I've lived with that hopelessness for decades. Um, people can recover. Yeah. You can, you, you, you slow down and you, 
practice a little bit of self-forgiveness and self-acceptance and you do what you need, take as much time as you need, but you take the time to find some resources and find some allies that you can talk to. And if you're utterly hopeless, I would say that I know the feeling and now I am absolutely in love with my life and, um, you know, I'm still the same person. I, I, I've just changed my behavior, my outlook and work towards positivity. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I, and you know, similar to my story as well. I mean, I was at a suicidal point and I think back to that and think, holy crap, like I have four kids that I love so dearly and to be able to be with them and watch them grow up and to be a part of their lives and to know that I almost took that away from from me and from them um, really makes me, un- I mean, it's it's incredible that I would have been to that point. But yeah, so time and effort. If you don't mind, I'd love to shift gears a bit. I know you have a website and you've been doing some writing and I'd love uh, for our listeners to hear about that. Yeah, eddiekedge.com. I also have... Could you spell a, that slowly just for the listeners? Just E-D-D-I-E-K-E-D-G-E.com. I also have a website, um, a blog, which is eddiekedge's backslash blog. You can link to it from the main site. The main site is my story. It's the actual newspaper article from that day I referred to earlier, January of 1980, describing my uh, abduction as a police report. And then a little snippet from the book that I wrote, which is called Song of Highway One South. And uh, it's a forthcoming memoir that I've been shopping around to publishers, but it's not on the shelves yet. Um, And the other things that I do are, um, I do a lot of... uh, Charity work. There's, if you are listening to this because you're also a survivor of sexual abuse, there is an organization that I'm very uh, committed to serving, which is called MaleSurvivor.org. And if you need to talk about your depression or your thoughts of suicide or your uh, feelings of shame and um, and and isolation, log on to MaleSurvivor.org. It's free, and you can. Uh, establish an, an anonymous account and you can find other supporters who know exactly what you're going through. Again, you know, this, this hopelessness and this feeling of, of having no recourse uh, is a feeling I know intimately. And I agree with you, Al. Um, one of the things that allowed me to stop what I was doing was just that. I have a family inside. There is a child. There is a wife. I have a life. There are people who love me. It doesn't feel like it in this moment, but there are those people and there are strangers out there who are willing to help you too. And so don't discount that. Right. Do you, um, so you mentioned the organization for male survivors and do you actually work with them or do you just, uh, support the organization? Yeah, I, I volunteer. Um, I have a um, a position in, within the organization, within the administration of the organization, and um, so I'm a volunteer there. I'm also uh, involved with uh, youth homelessness because um, one of the things that I went through in my 
my days was homelessness. We didn't get into that, but as you might imagine, when you are as crippling, uh, cripplingly depressed as I was, uh, you you lose all motivation to do anything. And so, I support a, a local youth homeless shelter in Seattle where I live, and it's another um, big passion of mine because, you know, these are kids who have just basically been forgotten. That is, and fan- of course, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, what do you get out of that? Well, it's because of of what you said about, you know, what would you say to somebody who 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 doesn't have the hope? And and I want to come back as the living embodiment of that person. You're gonna make me choke up here, but I I was there. I was hopeless. I was homeless. I was young, and. Now I have everything. I have a house. I eat every day. I mean, people who have never been homeless don't understand. Eating every day is really a nice thing. Uh, Showering, using a bathroom without having to go to a public toilet and sneak in or something like that. Oh, we take it all for granted. It's it's really amazing. And so I, I show up for the kids to say, hey, look, things are bad now and you are not receiving that respect that, that every human being deserves. Um, but... I was there, and now I'm here to serve you. And, That's and I phenomenal. Do you find it therapeutic for yourself? Yeah, I find it very therapeutic because it is reconnecting with the community. Um, there's the the pyramid that Maslow created called the hierarchy of needs, and at the top is self-actualization. But that's actually misquoted because when Maslow created that pyramid in the late 30s, early 40s, he revised it to include the transcendent self, where you are serving others. That is the highest personal achievement, or the highest human achievement, is not your self-actualization, but to serve others and to be a role model and at least in some small way uh, a, a, a guide for other people who may be coming up behind you have uh, experience who are currently experiencing the same sort of hardships that you've had. So absolutely it is a therapeutic, um, endeavor. And I would encourage anybody, by the way, and this is going to sound counterintuitive because what do we do when we're depressed? We sit at home. We want to be by ourselves. We don't want to engage. We want to stew and feel terrible because it's just this overwhelming feeling of inadequacy and self-loathing and i get that the best remedy is actually to fight that feeling and go out and do some work volunteer meet people yeah it'll be awkward you may not have the greatest experience at first but give it a chance because it is liberating to go and serve someone else and see the joy that they have and be able to connect because these are conversations that most people don't have. You and I, Al, are very unique. We're unicorns, men who will talk about really um, sensitive issues that are uh, you know, very um, vulnerable issues. And if you go out into the community and you and you work, you know, serving in a soup kitchen or 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 doing any kind of community service where you're helping people and you get to interact with your the population that you're serving, they will um, 
they will be so thankful and they will be so grateful and you will feel like a million dollars. You'll go from self-loathing to feeling like you are the greatest hero that ever existed in their eyes because to them you are. Yeah, I think that it it's incredible to hear what you are doing to give back. Um, writing your book, sharing your story, um, meeting other youth who are homeless. You are, yeah, that's, and I, I am certain that's got to be a large part of your recovery when you finally were able to do that and it just keeps you um, continuing that path of recovery. Well, yeah, I have to do it because, I mean, so full disclosure, the nature of my 35 years of PTSD and my crippling depression and all the alienation, all of the, the host of mental illnesses that I've had to deal with, um, it makes it very difficult for me to have regular employment, you know, so I have to stay busy. I have to remain engaged. I have to do things to move forward. I cannot allow myself to just sit home and mope. And because it's very difficult for me due to my conditions to have a regular job, I do a lot of contract work, you know, I do marketing stuff where I, uh, you know, basically do remote contract work. And I do a lot of this volunteer service simply because, I have to stay busy to to stay focused and to remain positive, and and because I can't really get a regular straight job, these are the avenues. And but it's a you know it's a, it's a wonderful avenue. I am so grateful that I have the skills and the um, the opportunity to serve. Yeah, it I, it seems like it's a a new path for you and a path that not only serves you and your purposes, but you're serving others. Yeah. So yeah, that's phenomenal. Um, next steps with your book is just to find a publisher. Well, um, you know, I, I've had it edited, and um, when I wrote the book, it was when I was coming out of my really, really deep, dark, depressive episode, which we've already discussed. And when I got on the medication, which in my case is called Wellbutrin, there's a generic name for it um but for me it works i'm not endorsing that uh, i'm just saying for my particular uh chemistry in my in my brain wellbutrin has been very successful for me um when i first got on that all of the feeling like a lead blanket that 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 coats your brain when you have depression for as long as i have you feel like you're basically living under a one of those blankets that they put on you before you get the x-ray at the dentist you know and and so everything is um, muted and, and and diminished and when i finally had control over my brain and i could focus and i could write I wrote this book. It was 60,000 words. I wrote it in like six months. I did just wow. sat down and just wrote a book. Um, but I didn't know how to write. You know, I, I've been living as a, you know, a substance abusing, depressive, more or less degenerate. So you know, it's not like I had a lot of skill. Um, so I've had the book edited. And the main feedback is, wow, you're really a substance abusing degenerate. You, you, need to, you, need, you might want to put a little spin on this you know, to, to make people not want to kill themselves when they read your book. And so I am doing, <laughs> I'm doing what I can to put the kind of insights that we're talking about today into the, the text of, of the manuscript because – at the time when I wrote it, it was just basically an airing of all of my emotional 
baggage, all of that gaslighting that I was subjected to, I had to, I had to set the record straight. No, you're not going to just pull up your boots and get better. No, it's not my attitude. No, it's not a case where I'm just lazy. These, you know, I, I, and so in many ways it was just me, um, having a voice for the first time and saying, Hey, look, uh, you know, this is this is a real thing, and this is what went on, and and these are the reasons why I'm in the place I am today. Uh, but what I did not do in my first iteration or my second iteration is include the kinds of positive, hopeful messages uh, that I've just now start started to really embody. You know, as I said, these these things I've been working on for four or five years now, and I'm just now getting to that third hurdle where you have inertia, where you see all of the progress that you've done and you realize the stopping and starting is now becoming a, a way of life and not a, a constant struggle. Well, good luck with the book. I think uh, that'll be fantastic when it comes out. And I think you only have so much more to add to the book now that you have so many more insights into that recovery piece. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful. And again, you mentioned your website so people can check out uh, EddieCatch.com. Yep. Yeah. So before we wrap up here, I'm wondering if you have any kind of final tips, suggestions, advice, or words of hope to, to people. I know you you talked about a lot of pieces of working towards recovery, but any uh, any final piece you want to say? Well, if you're suffering with depression, um, the main piece of advice is, is have the courage to act. Do not... Um, resign yourself to unhappiness. And I know so many people who are just resigned to unhappiness. And the first step is to acknowledge you have the control and you have the power to act. And so that's what I want to encourage people to do is just take that control and use that power to act. And really, truly, the rest falls into place after that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you, uh, a lot. Thank you incredibly for your time. Really enjoyed speaking with you. And I want to wish you well and uh, good luck with the book. And I hope to keep in touch with you. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Al. Absolutely. Well, stay healthy, Eddie, and keep in touch. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.